Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Chapter 31 of The Last of the Mohicans. A narrative of 1757 by James Fenimore Cooper. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 31 Quote, Flu. Kill the poise and the luggage. Tis expressly against the law of arms. Tis an errant, a piece of knavery. Mark you now, as can be offered in the earl. Unquote. From King Henry V. So long as their enemy and his victim continued in sight, the multitude remained motionless as beings charmed to the place by some power that was friendly to Huron. But the instant he disappeared, it became tossed and agitated by fierce and powerful passion. Uncas maintained his elevated stand, keeping his eyes on the form of Cora until the colors of her dress were blended with the foliage of the forest. When he descended, and, moving silently through the throng, he disappeared in that lodge from which he had so recently ensued. A few of the graver and more attentive warriors, who caught the gleams of anger that shot from the eyes of the young chief in passing, followed him to the place he had selected for his meditations, after which Tamanund and Alice were removed, and the women and the children were ordered to disperse. During the momentous hour that succeeded, the encampment resembled a hive of troubled bees, who only awaited the appearance and example of their leader to take some distance and momentous flight. A young warrior at length issued from the lodge of Uncas, and, moving deliberately, with a sort of grave march, toward a dwarf pine that grew in the crevices of the rocky terrace, he tore the bark from its body, and then turned whence he came without speaking. He was soon followed by another, who stripped the sapling of its branches, leaving it a naked and blazed trunk. Footnote. A tree which has been partially or entirely stripped of its bark is said in the language of the country to be blazed. The term is strictly English, for a horse is said to be blazed when it has a white mark. End footnote. A third colored the post with stripes of a dark red paint all which indications of a hostile design in the leaders of the nation were received by the men without in a gloomy and ominous silence. Finally, the Mohican himself reappeared, divested of all his attire, except his girdle and leggings, and with one half of his fine features hid under a cloud of threatening black. Uncas moved with a slow and dignified tread toward the post, which he immediately commenced encircling with a measured step, not unlike an ancient dance, raising his voice at the same time in the wild and irregular chant of his war-song. The notes were in the extremes of human sounds, being sometimes melancholy and exquisitely plaintive, even rivaling the melody of birds, and then, 
by sudden and startling transitions, causing the auditors to tremble by their depth and energy. The words were few and often repeated, proceeding gradually from a sort of invocation or hymn to the deity, to an intimation of the warrior's object, and terminating as they commenced with an acknowledgment of his own dependence on the great spirit. If it were possible to translate the comprehensive and melodious language in which he spoke, the ode might read something like the following. Manito, 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 thou art great, thou art good, thou art wise. Manito, Manito, thou art just, in the heavens, in the clouds. Oh, I see many spots, many dark, many red, in the heavens, oh, I see many clouds. In the woods, in the air, oh, I hear the hoop, the long yell, and this cry. In the woods, oh, I hear the loud hoop. Manito, 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 I am weak, thou art strong, I am slow. Manito, Manito, give me aid. At the end of what might be called each verse he made a pause, by raising a note louder and longer than common, that was peculiarly suited to the sentiment just expressed. The first close was solemn, and intended to convey the idea of veneration. The second, descriptive, bordering on the alarming. And the third was the well-known and terrific war-hoop, which burst from the lips of the young warrior like a combination of the frightful sounds of battle. The last was like the first humble and imploring. Three times did he repeat this song, and as often did he encircle the post in his dance. At the close of the first turn, a grave and highly esteemed chief of the Lenape followed his example, singing words of his own, however, to music of similar character. Warrior after warrior enlisted in the dance, until all of any renown and authority were numbered in its mazes. The spectacle now became wildly terrific, the fierce-looking and menacing visages of the chiefs receiving additional power from the appalling strains in which they mingled their guttural tones. Just then Uncas struck his tomahawk deep into the post and raised his voice in a shout which might be termed his own battle-cry. The act announced that he had assumed the chief authority in the intended expedition. It was a signal that awakened all the slumbering passions of the nation. A hundred youths, who had hereto been restrained by the diffidence of their years, rushed in a frantic body on the fancied emblem of their enemy, and severed it asunder, splinter by splinter, until nothing remained of the trunk but its roots in the earth. During this moment of tumult, the ruthless deeds of war were performed on the fragments of the tree, with as much apparent ferocity as if they were the living victims of their cruelty. Some were scalped, some received the keen and trembling axe, and others suffered thrust from the fatal knife. In short, the manifestations of zeal and fierce delight were so great and unequivocal that the expedition was declared to be a war of the nation. The instant Uncas had struck the blow, he moved out of the circle and cast his eyes up to the sun, which was just gaining the point whence the truce with Maqua was to end. 
the fact was soon announced by a significant gesture accompanied by a corresponding cry, and the whole of the excited multitude abandoned their mimic warfare with shrill yells of pleasure to prepare for the more hazardous experiment of the reality. The whole face of the encampment was instantly changed. The warriors who were already armed and painted became still as if they were incapable of any uncommon burst of emotion. On the other hand, the women broke out of the lodges with songs of joy and those of lamentation, so strangely mixed that it might have been difficult to have said which passion preponderated. None, however, was idle. Some bore their choicest articles, others their young, and some their aged and infirm, into the forest, which spread itself like a verdant carpet of bright green against the side of the mountain. Thither Tamanund also retired, with calm composure, after a short and touching interview with Uncas, from whom the sage separated with the reluctance that a parent would quit a long-lost and just-recovered child. In the meantime, Duncan saw Alice to a place of safety, and then sought the scout with a countenance that denoted how eagerly he also panted for the approaching contest. But Hawkeye was too much accustomed to the war-song and the enlistments of the natives to betray any interest in the passing scene. He merely cast an occasional look at the number and quality of the warriors, who, from time to time, signified their readiness to accompany Uncas to the field. In this particular he was soon satisfied, for, as has been already seen, the power of the young chief quickly embraced every fighting man in the nation. After this material point was so satisfactorily decided, he dispatched an Indian boy in quest of Kildeer and the rifle of Uncas to the place where they had deposited their weapons on approaching the camp of the Delawares. A measure of double policy, inasmuch to protect the arms from their own fate if detained as prisoners, and gave them the advantage of appearing among the strangers rather as sufferers than as men provided with means of defense and subsistence. In selecting another to perform the office of reclaiming his highly prized rifle, the scout had lost sight of none of his habitual caution. He knew that Magua had not come unattended, and he also knew that Huron's spies watched the movements of their new enemies along the whole boundary of the woods. It would therefore have been fatal to himself to have attempted the experiment. A warrior would have fared no better, but the danger of a boy would not be likely to commence until after his object was discovered. When Hayward joined him, the scout was coolly awaiting the result of this experiment. The boy, who had been well instructed, and was sufficiently crafty, proceeded with a bosom that was swelling with the pride of such a confidence, and all the hopes of young ambition, carelessly crossed the clearing to the wood, which he entered at a point at some little distance from the place where the guns were secreted. The instant, however, he was concealed by the foliage of the bushes, his dusky form was to be seen gliding like that of a serpent toward the desired treasure. He was successful, and in another moment he appeared flying across the narrow opening that skirted the base of the terrace on which the village stood, with the velocity of an arrow, and bearing a prize in each hand. He had actually gained the crags, and was leaping up their sides with incredible activity, 
when a shot from the woods showed how accurate had been the judgment of the scout. The boy answered it with a feeble but contemptuous shout, and immediately a second bullet was sent after him from another part of the cover. At the next instant he appeared on the level above, elevating his guns in triumph, while he moved with the air of a conqueror toward the renowned hunter who had honored him by so glorious a commission. Notwithstanding the lively interest Hawkeye had taken in the fate of his messenger, he received Kildeer with a satisfaction that momentarily drove all other recollections from his mind. After examining the piece with an intelligent eye, and opening and shutting the pan for some ten or fifteen times, and trying sundry other equally important experiments on the lock, he turned to the boy and demanded with great manifestations of kindness if he was hurt. The urchin looked proudly up in his face, but made no reply. "'Ah, oh, I see, lad, the knaves have barked your arm,' added the scout, taking up the limb of the patient sufferer, across which a deep flesh wound had been made by one of the bullets. "'But a little bruised alder will act like a charm. In the meantime I will wrap it in a bandage of wampum. You have commenced the business of a warrior early, my brave boy, and are likely to bear a plenty of honorable scars to your grave. I know many young men that have taken scalps that cannot show such a mark as this. Go! Having bound up the arm, you will be a chief. The lad departed, prouder of his flowing blood than the vainest courtier could be of his blushing ribbon, and stalked among the fellows of his age an object of general admiration and envy. But, in a moment of so many serious and important duties, this single act of juvenile fortitude did not attract the general notice, and commendation it would have received under milder auspices. It had, however, served to apprise the Delawares of the position and intentions of their enemies. Accordingly, a party of adventurers, better suited to the task than the weak though spirited boy, was ordered to dislodge the skulkers. The duty was soon performed, for most of the Hurons retired of themselves when they found they had been discovered. The Delawares followed to a sufficient distance from their own encampment, and then halted for orders, apprehensive of being led into an ambush. As both parties secreted themselves, the woods were again as still and quiet as a mild summer morning and deep solitude could render them. The calm but still impatient Uncas now collected his chiefs, and divided his power. He presented Hawkeye as a warrior, often tried and always found deserving of confidence. When he found his friend met with a favorable reception, he bestowed on him the command of twenty men like himself, active, skillful, and resolute. He gave the Delawares to understand the rank of Hayward among the troops of the Angus, and then tendered to him a trust of equal authority but Duncan declined the charge, professing his readiness to serve as a volunteer by the side of the scout. After this disposition, the young Mohican appointed various native chiefs to fill the different situations of responsibility, and the time pressing, he gave forth the word to march. He was cheerfully but silently obeyed by more than two hundred men. Their entrance into the forest was perfectly unmolested, nor did they encounter any living objects which could either give the alarm or furnish the intelligence they needed until they came upon the lairs of their own scouts. Here a halt was ordered, 
and the chiefs were assembled to hold a whispering council. At this meeting diverse plans of operation were suggested, though none of a character to meet the wishes of their ardent leader. Had Uncas followed the promptings of his own inclinations, he would have led his followers to the charge without a moment's delay, and put the conflict to the hazard of an instant issue. But such of course would have been in opposition to all the received practices and opinions of his countrymen. He was therefore fain to adopt the caution that in the present temper of his mind he extricated, and to listen to advice at which his fiery spirit chafed under the vivid recollection of Cora's danger and Maqua's insolence. After an unsatisfactory conference of many minutes, a solitary individual was seen advancing from the side of the enemy with such apparent haste as to induce the belief he might be a messenger charged with pacific overtures. When within a hundred yards, however, of the cover behind which the Delaware Council had assembled, the stranger hesitated appeared uncertain what course to take, and finally halted. All eyes were turned now on Uncas, as if seeking directions how to proceed. Hawkeye, said the young chief in a low voice, he must never speak to the Hurons again. His time has come, said the laconic scout, thrusting the long barrel of his rifle through the leaves, and taking his deliberate and fatal aim. But instead of pulling the trigger, he lowered the muzzle again, and indulged himself in a fit of his peculiar mirth. "'I took the imp for a mingo, as I'm a miserable sinner,' he said. "'But when my eye ranged along his ribs for a place to get the bullet in, "'would you think it, Uncas? "'I saw the musicianer's blower, and so, after all, it is the man they call Gamut, "'whose death can profit no one, and whose life, if this tongue can do anything but sing, may be made serviceable to our own ends. If sounds have not lost their virtue, I'll soon have a discourse with the honest fellow, and that in a voice he'll find more agreeable than the speech of Kildeer. So saying, Hawkeye laid aside his rifle, and crawling through the bushes until within hearing of David, he attempted to repeat the musical effort which had conducted himself with so much safety and eclat through the Huron encampment. The exquisite organs of Gamut could not readily be deceived, and, to say the truth, it would have been difficult for any other than Hawkeye to produce a similar noise. And consequently, having once before heard the sounds, he now knew whence they proceeded. The poor fellow appeared relieved from a state of great embarrassment, for pursuing the direction of the voice, a task that to him was not much less arduous than it would have been to have gone up in the face of a battery, he soon discovered the hidden songster. "'I wonder what the Hurons will think of that,' said the scout, laughing, as he took his companion by the arm and urged him toward the rear. "'If the knaves lie within earshot, they will say there are two non-composers instead of one. But here we are safe,' he added, pointing to Uncas and his associates. "'Now, Give us the history of the Mingo inventions in natural English, and without any ups and downs of voice. David gazed about him at the fierce and wild-looking chiefs, in mute wonder. But assured by the presence of faces that he knew, he soon rallied his faculties so far as to make an intelligent reply. The heathen are abroad in goodly numbers, said David, 
and I fear with evil intent. There has been much howling and ungodly revelry, together with such sounds as it is profanity to utter, in their habitations within the past hour, so much so, in truth, that I have fled to the Delawares in search of peace. Your ears might not have profited much by the exchange had you been quicker of foot, returned the scout a little dryly. But let that be as it may. Where are the Hurons? They lie hid in the forest, between this spot and their village, in such force that prudence would teach you instantly to return. Uncas cast a glance along the range of trees which concealed his own band, and mentioned the name of Maqua. He is among them. He brought in the maiden that had sojourned with the Delawares, and leaving her in the cave, has put himself like a raging wolf at the head of his savages. I know not what has troubled his spirit so great. He has left her, you say, in the cave, interrupted Hayward. Tis well that we know its situation. May not something be done for her instant relief? Uncas looked earnestly at the scout before he asked. What says Hawkeye? Give me twenty rifles, and I will turn to the right along the stream, and passing by the huts of the beaver will join the sagamore and the colonel. You shall then hear the hoop from that quarter. With this wind one may easily send it a mile. Then, Uncas, do you drive in the front. When they come within range of our pieces, we will give them a blow that I pledge the good name of an old frontiersman shall make their line bend like an ashen bow after which we will carry the village and take the woman from the cave when the affair may be finished with the tribe according to a white man's battle by a blow and a victory or in the indian fashion with dodge and cover there may be no great learning major in this plan but with courage and patience it can all be done i like it very much cried duncan who saw that the release of Cora was the primary object in the mind of the scout. I like it much. Let it be instantly attempted. After a short conference, the plan was matured and rendered more intelligible to the several parties. The different signals were appointed, and the chiefs separated, each to his allotted station. End of chapter 31 This reading by Gary W. Sherwin of Yukon, Pennsylvania in January of 2008. Chapter 32 of The Last of the Mohicans, a narrative of 1757 by James Fenimore Cooper. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 32. Quote, but plague shall spread and funeral fires increase till the great king, without a ransom paid, to her own Chrissa send the black-eyed maid. Unquote. From Pope. During the time Uncas was making his disposition of his forces, the woods were still and with the exception of those who had met in council, apparently as much untenanted as when they came fresh from the hands of their almighty creator. The eye could range in every direction through the long and shadowed vistas of the trees, 
but nowhere was any object to be seen that did not properly belong to the peaceful and slumbering scenery. Here and there a bird was heard fluttering among the branches of the beeches, and occasionally a squirrel dropped a nut, drawing the startled looks of the party for a moment to the place. But the instant the casual interruption ceased, the passing air was heard murmuring above their heads, along the verdant and undulating surface of the forest, which spread itself unbroken, unless by stream or lake, over such a vast region of country. Across the tract of wilderness which lay between the Delawares and the village of their enemies, it seemed as if the foot of man had never trodden, so breathing and deep was the silence in which it lay. But Hawkeye, whose duty led him foremost in the adventure, knew the character of those with whom he was about to contend too well to trust the treacherous quiet. When he saw his little band collected, the scout threw Kildeer into the hollow of his arm, and making a silent signal that he would be followed, he led them many rods toward the rear into the bed of a little brook, which they had crossed in advancing. Here he halted, and after waiting for the whole of his grave and attentive warriors to close about him, he spoke in Delaware, demanding, Do any of my young men know whither this run will lead us? A Delaware stretched forth a hand with the two fingers separated, and indicating the manner in which they were joined at the root, he answered, Before the sun could go its own length, the little water will be in the big. Then he added, pointing in the direction of the place he mentioned, the two make enough for the beavers. I thought as much, returned the scout, glancing his eye upward at the opening of the treetops, from the course it takes and the bearings of the mountains. Men, we will keep within the cover of its banks till we scent the Hurons. His companions gave the usual brief exclamation of assent, but perceiving that their leader was about to lead the way in person, one or two made signs that all was not as it should be. Hawkeye, who comprehended their meaning glances, turned and perceived that his party had been followed thus far by the singing-master. "'Do you know, friend,' asked the scout gravely, and perhaps with a little of the pride of conscious deserving in his manner, that this is a band of rangers, chosen for the most desperate service, and put under the command of one who, though another might say it with a better face, will not be apt to leave them idle. It may not be five, it cannot be thirty minutes, before we tread on the body of a Huron, living or dead. Though not admonished of your intentions in words, returned David, whose face was a little flushed, and whose ordinary quiet and unmeaning eyes glimmered with an expression of unusual fire. Your men have reminded me of the children of Jacob going out to battle against the Shechemites, for wickedly aspiring to wedlock with a woman of a race that was favored of the Lord. Now I have journeyed far, and sojourned much in good and evil with the maiden ye seek, and, though not a man of war, with my loins girded and my sword sharpened, yet would I gladly strike a blow in her behalf. The scout hesitated as if weighing the chances of such a strange enlistment in his mind before he answered. You know not the use of any weapon, 
you carry no rifle, and believe me, what the Mingos take they will freely give again. Though not of vaunting and bloodily disposed, Goliath, returned David, drawing a sling from beneath his party-colored and uncouth attire, I have not forgotten the example of the Jewish boy. With this ancient instrument of war have I practiced much in my youth, and peradventure the skill has not entirely departed from me. Aye, said Hawkeye, considering the deerskin thong and apron with a cold and discouraging eye. The thing might do its work among arrows or even knives, but these mengwe have been furnished by the Frenchers with a good grooved barrel a man. However, it seems to be your gift to go unharmed amid fire and as you have hitherto been favored major you have left your rifle at a cock a single shot before the time would be just twenty scalps lost to no purpose singer you can follow we may find use for you in the shoutings i thank you friend returned david supplying himself like his royal namesake from among the pebbles of the brook though not given to the desire to kill had you sent me away, my spirit would have been troubled. Remember, added the scout, tapping his own head significantly on that spot where Gamut was yet sore, we come to fight, and not to musicate. Until the general hoop is given, nothing speaks but the rifle. David nodded, as much to signify his acquiescence with the terms and then Hawkeye, casting another observant glance over his followers, made the signal to proceed. Their route lay for the distance of a mile along the bed of the watercourse. Though protected from any great danger of observation by the precipitous banks and the thick shrubbery which skirted the stream, no precaution known to an Indian attack was neglected. A warrior rather crawled than walked on each flank, so as to catch occasional glimpses into the forest, and every few minutes the band came to a halt and listened for hostile sounds, with an acuteness of organs that would be scarcely conceivable to a man in a less natural state. Their march was, however, unmolested, and they reached the point where the lesser stream was lost in the greater, without the smallest evidence that their progress had been noted. Here the scout again halted to consult the signs of the forest. "'We are likely to have a good day for a fight,' he said in English, addressing Hayward, and glancing his eyes upward at the clouds, which began to move in broad sheets across the firmament. "'A bright sun and a glittering barrel are no friends to true sight. Everything is favorable. They have the wind, which will bring down their noises and their smoke, too.' no little matter in itself, whereas with us it will be first a shot, and then a clear view. But here is an end to our cover. The beavers have had the range of this stream for hundreds of years, and what atween their food and their dams there is, as you see, many a girdled stub, but few living trees. Hawkeye had, in truth, in these few words, given no bad description of the prospect that now lay in their front. The brook was irregular in its width, sometimes shooting through narrow fissures in the rocks, and others 
spreading over acres of bottomland, forming little areas that might be termed ponds. Everywhere along its bands were the moldering relics of dead trees, in all the stages of decay, from those that groaned on their tottering trunks to such as had recently been robbed of those rugged coats that so mysteriously contained their principle of life. A few long, low, and moss-covered piles were scattered among them, like the memorials of a former and long-departed generation. All these minute particulars were noted by the scout with a gravity and interest that they probably had never before attracted. He knew that the Huron encampment lay a short half-mile up the brook, and, with the characteristic anxiety of one who dreaded a hidden danger, he was greatly troubled at not finding the smallest trace of the presence of his enemy. Once or twice he felt induced to give the order for a rush, and to attempt the village by surprise, but his experience quickly admonished him of the danger of so useless an experiment. Then he listened intently and with painful uncertainty for the sounds of hostility in the quarter where Uncas was left. But nothing was audible except the sighing of the wind, which began to sweep over the bosom of the forest in gust which threatened a tempest. At length, yielding rather to his unusual impatience than taking counsel from his knowledge, he determined to bring matters to an issue by unmasking his force and proceeding cautiously but steadily up the stream. The scout had stood while making his observations, sheltered by a break, and his companions still lay in the bed of the ravine through which the smaller stream debouched, but on hearing his low though intelligible signal, the whole party stole up the bank like so many dark spectres, and silently arranged themselves around him. Pointing in the direction he wished to proceed, Hawkeye advanced, the band breaking off in single files and following so accurately in his footsteps as to leave it, if we accept Hayward and David, the trail of but a single man. The party was, however, scarcely uncovered before a volley from a dozen rifles was heard in their rear, and a Delaware leaping high into the air like a wounded deer fell at his whole length, dead. Ah, oh, I feared some deviltry like this, exclaimed the scout in English adding with the quickness of thought in his adopted tongue, to cover men and charge. The band dispersed at the word, and before Hayward had well recovered from his surprise, he found himself standing alone with David. Luckily, the Hurons had already fallen back, and he was safe from their fire. But this state of things was evidently to be of short continuance, for the scout set the example of pressing on their retreat by discharging his rifle and darting from tree to tree as his enemy slowly yielded ground. It would seem that the assault had been made by a very small party of the Hurons, which, however, continued to increase in numbers as it retired on its friends until the return fire was very nearly, if not quite, equal to that maintained by the advancing Delawares. Hayward threw himself among the combatants, and imitating the necessary caution of his companions, he made quick discharges with his own rifle. The contrast now grew warm and stationary. Few were injured, as both parties kept their bodies as much protected as possible by the trees, never indeed exposing any part of their persons, except in the act of taking aim. 
but the chances were gradually growing unfavorable to Hawkeye and his band. The quick-sighted scout perceived his danger without knowing how to remedy it. He saw it was more dangerous to retreat than to maintain his ground, while he found his enemy throwing out men on his flank, which rendered the task of keeping themselves covered so very difficult to the Delawares as to nearly silence their fire. At this embarrassing moment, when they began to think the whole of the hostile tribe was gradually encircling them, they heard the yell of combatants and the rattling of arms echoing under the arches of the wood at the place where Uncas was posted, a bottom which, in a manner, lay beneath the ground in which Hawkeye and his party were contending. The effects of this attack were instantaneous, and to the scout and his friends greatly relieving. It would seem that while his own surprise had been anticipated, and had consequently failed, the enemy in their turn, having been deceived in its object and in his numbers, had left too small a force to resist the impetuous onset of the young Mohican. This fact was doubly apparent by the rapid manner in which the battle in the forest rolled upward toward the village, and by an instant falling off in the number of their assailants, who rushed to assist in maintaining the front, and, as it now proved to be, the principal point of defense. Animating his followers by his voice, and his own example, Hawkeye then gave the word to bear down upon their foes. The charge, in that rude species of warfare, consisted merely of pushing from cover to cover, nigher to the enemy, and in this maneuver he was instantly and successfully obeyed. The Hurons were compelled to withdraw, and the scene of the contest rapidly changed from the more open ground on which it had commenced to a spot where the assailed found a thicket to rest upon. Here the struggle was protracted, arduous, and seemingly of doubtful issue. The Delawares, though none of them fell, beginning to bleed freely, in consequence of the disadvantage at which they were held. In this crisis, Hawkeye found means to get behind the same tree as that which served for a cover to Hayward. Most of his own combatants being within call, a little on his right, where they maintained rapid though fruitless discharges on their sheltered enemies. "'You are a young man, Major,' said the scout, dropping the butt of Kildur to the earth and leaning on the barrel, a little fatigued with his previous industry, and it may be your gift to lead armies. At some future day, again these imps the Mingos. You may here see the philosophy of an Indian fight. It consists mainly in ready hand, a quick eye, and a good cover.' Now, if you had a company of the Royal Americans here, in what manner would you set them to work in this business? The bayonet would make a road. Aye, there is white reason in what you say. But a man must ask himself in this wilderness, how many lives can he spare? No horse, continued the scout, shaking his head, like one who mused. Footnote. The American forest admits of the passage of horses, there being little underbrush and few tangled breaks. The plan of Hawkeye is the one which has always proved the most successful in the battles between the whites and the Indians. Wayne, in his celebrated campaign on the Miami, received the fire of his enemies in line, and then, causing his dragoons to wheel round his flanks, the Indians were driven from their covers before they had time to load. One of the most conspicuous of the chiefs who fought in the Battle of Miami assured the writer that the red men 
could not fight the warriors with long knives and leather stockings, meaning the dragoons with their sabres and boots. End footnote. Horse, I am ashamed to say, must sooner or later decide these scrimmages. The brutes are better than men, and to horse must we come at last. Put a shodden hoof on the moccasin of a redskin, and, if his rifle be once emptied, he will never stop to load it again. This is a subject that might better be discussed at another time, returned Hayward. Shall we charge? I see no contradiction to the gifts of any man in passing his breathing spells in useful reflections, the scout replied. As to Rush, I little relish such a measure, for a scalp or two must be thrown away in the attempt. And yet, he added, bending his head aside to catch the sounds of the distant combat, if we are to be of use to Uncas, the knaves in our front must be got rid of. Then, turning with a prompt and decided air, he called aloud to his Indians in their own language. His word were answered by a shout, and, at a given signal, each warrior made a swift movement around his particular tree. The sight of so many dark bodies, glancing before their eyes at the same instant, drew a hasty, and consequently, an ineffectual fire from the Hurons. Without stopping to breathe, the Delawares leaped in long bounds toward the wood, like so many panthers springing upon their prey. Hawkeye was in front, brandishing his terrible rifle, and animating his followers by his example. A few of the older and more cunning Hurons, who had not been deceived by the artifice which had been practiced to draw their fire, now made a close and deadly discharge of their pieces and justified the apprehensions of the scout by falling three of his foremost warriors. But the shock was insufficient to repel the impetus of the charge. The Delawares broke into the cover with the ferocity of their natures, and swept away every trace of resistance by the fury of the onset. The combat endured only for an instant, hand to hand, and then the assailed yielded ground rapidly until they reached the opposite margin of the thicket, where they clung to the cover with the sort of obstinacy that is so often witnessed in hunted brutes. At this critical moment, when the success of the struggle was again becoming doubtful, the crack of a rifle was heard behind the Hurons, and a bullet came whizzing from among some beaver lodges, which were situated in the clearing in the rear, and was followed by the fierce appalling yell of the war-hoop. "'There speaks the Sagamore!' shouted Hawkeye, answering the cry with his own stentorian voice. We have them now in face and back. The effect on the Hurons was instantaneous. Discouraged by an assault from a quarter that left them no opportunity for cover, the warriors uttered a common yell of disappointment, and breaking off in a body, they spread themselves across the opening, heedless of every consideration but flight. Many fell in making the experiment, under the bullets and the blows of the pursuing Delawares. We shall not pause to detail the meeting between the scout and Chingachgook, or the more touching interview that Duncan held with Monroe. A few brief and hurried words served to explain the state of things to both parties, and then Hawkeye, pointing out the Sagamore to his band, resigned the chief authority into the hands of the Mohican chief. Chingachgook assumed the station to which his birth and experience gave him so distinguished a claim. With a grave dignity, 
that always gives force to the mandates of a native warrior. Following the footsteps of the scout, he led the party back through the thicket, his men scalping the fallen Hurons and secreting the bodies of their own dead as they proceeded, until they gained a point where the former was content to make a halt. The warriors who had breathed themselves freely in the preceding struggle were now posted on a bit of level ground, sprinkled with trees in sufficient numbers to conceal them. The land fell away rather precipitately in front, and beneath their eyes stretched for several miles a narrow, dark, and wooded vale. It was through this dense and dark forest that Uncas was still contending with the main body of the Hurons. The Mohican and his friends advanced to the brow of the hill and listened with practiced ears to the sounds of the combat. A few birds hovered over the leafy bosom of the valley, frightened from their secluded nest, and here and there a light vapory cloud, which seemed already blending with the atmosphere, arose above the trees and indicated some spot where the struggle had been fierce and stationary. "'The fight is coming up the ascent,' said Duncan, pointing in the direction of a new explosion of firearms. We are too much in the center of their line to be effective. They will incline into the hollow where the cover is thicker, said the scout, and that will leave us well on their flank. Go, Sagamore, you will hardly be in time to give the hoop and lead on the young men. I will fight this scrimmage with warriors of my own color. You know me, Mohican. Not a Huron of them shall cross the swell into your rear without the notice of Kildeer. The Indian paused another moment to consider the signs of the contest, which was now rolling rapidly up the ascent, a certain evidence that the Delawares triumphed. Nor did he actually quit the place until admonished by the proximity of his friends, as well as enemies, by the bullets of the former, which began to patter among the dried leaves on the ground, like the bits of falling hail which precede the bursting of the tempest. Hawkeye and his three companions withdrew a few paces to a shelter, and awaited the issue with calmness that nothing but great practice could impart in such a scene. It was not long before the reports of the rifles began to lose the echoes of the woods and to sound like weapons discharged in the open air. Then a warrior appeared here and there, driven to the skirts of the forest, and rallying as he entered the clearing, as at the place where the final stand was to be made. These were soon joined by others, until a long line of swarthy figures was to be seen clinging to the cover with the obstinacy of desperation. Hayward began to grow impatient, and turned his eyes anxiously in the direction of Chinchgochkook. The chief was seated on a rock, with nothing visible but his calm visage, considering the spectacle with an eye as deliberate as if he were posted to merely view the struggle. "'The time has come for the Delaware to strike,' said Duncan. "'Not so, not so,' returned the scout. "'When he scents his friend, he will let them know that he is here. "'See, see, the knaves are getting in that clump of pines, "'like bees settling after their flight. "'By the Lord, a squaw might put a bullet in the center "'of such a knot of dark skins.' At that instant the hoop was given, and a dozen Hurons fell by a discharge from Chinchgochkook and his band. 
The shout that followed was answered by a single war cry from the forest, and a yell passed through the air that sounded as if a thousand throats were united in a common effort. The Hurons staggered, deserting the center of their line, and Uncas issued from the forest through the opening they left, at the head of a hundred warriors. Waving his hands left and right, the young chief pointed out the enemy to his followers, who separated in pursuit. The war now divided, both wings of the broken Hurons seeking protection in the woods again, hotly pressed by the victorious warriors of the Lenape. A minute might have passed, but the sounds were already receding in different directions, and gradually losing their distinctness beneath the echoing arches of the woods. One little knot of Hurons, however, had disdained to seek a cover, and were retiring like lions at bay, slowly and sullenly, up the acclivity which Chingachgook and his band had just deserted to mingle more closely in the fray. Maqua was conspicuous in this party, both by his fierce and savage mien, and by the air of haughty authority he yet maintained. In his eagerness to expedite the pursuit, Uncas had left himself nearly alone, but the moment his eye caught the figure of Le Subtil, every other consideration was forgotten, raising his cry of battle which recalled some six or seven warriors, and, reckless of the disparity of their numbers, he rushed upon his enemy. Le Renard, who watched the movement, paused to receive him with secret joy. But at the moment when he thought the rashness of his impetuous young assailant had left him at his mercy, another shout was given, and La Longue Carabine was seen rushing to the rescue, attended by all his white associates. The Huron instantly turned, and commenced a rapid retreat up the ascent. There was no time for greetings or congratulations, for Uncas, though unconscious of the presence of his friends, continued the pursuit with the velocity of the wind. In vain Hawkeye called to him to respect the covers. The young Mohican braved the dangerous fire of his enemies, and soon compelled them to a flight as swift as his own headlong speed. It was fortunate that the race was of short continuance, and that the white men were so much favored by their position, or the Delaware would soon have outstripped all his companions, and fallen a victim to his own temerity. But, ere such a calamity could happen, the pursuers and pursued entered the Wyandotte village, within striking distance of each other. Excited by the presence of their dwellings, and tired of the chase, the Hurons now made a stand and fought around their council lodge, with the fury of despair. The onset and the issue were like the passage and destruction of a whirlwind. The tomahawk of Uncas, the blows of Hawkeye, and even the still nervous arm of Monroe were all busy for that passing moment, and the ground was quickly strewed with their enemies. Still, Maqua, though daring and much exposed, escaped from every effort against his life. With that sort of fabled protection that was made to overlook the fortunes of favored heroes in the legends of ancient poetry, raising a yell that spoke volumes of anger and disappointment, the subtle chief, when he saw his comrades fallen, darted away from the place, attended by his two only surviving friends leaving the Delawares engaged in stripping the dead of the bloody trophies of their victory. But Uncas, who had vainly sought him in the melee, 
bounded forward in pursuit, Hawkeye, Hayward, and David still pressing on his footsteps. The utmost that the scout could effect was to keep the muzzle of his rifle a little in advance of his friend, to whom, however, it answered every purpose of a charmed shield. Once Mockwell appeared disposed to make another and final effort to revenge his losses, but abandoning his intention as soon as demonstrated, he leaped into a thicket of bushes, through which he was followed by his enemies, and suddenly entered the mouth of the cave already known to the reader. Hawkeye, who had only forborne to fire in tenderness to Uncas, raised a shout of success and proclaimed aloud that now they were certain of their game. The pursuers dashed into the long and narrow entrance in time to catch a glimpse of the retreating forms of the Hurons. Their passage through the natural galleries and subterraneous apartments of the cavern was preceded by the shrieks and cries of hundreds of women and children. The place seen by its dim and uncertain light appeared like the shades of the infernal regions, across which unhappy ghosts and savage demons were flitting in multitudes. Still Uncas kept his eye on Maqua, as if life to him possessed but a single object. Hayward and the scout still pressed on his rear, actuated, though possibly in a less degree, by a common feeling. But their way was becoming intricate in those dark and gloomy passages, and the glimpses of the retiring warriors less distinct and frequent. And, for a moment, the trace was believed to be lost, when a white robe was seen fluttering in the further extremity of a passage that seemed to lead up the mountain. "'Tis Cora!' exclaimed Hayward in a voice in which horror and delight were wildly mingled. "'Cora! Cora!' echoed Uncas, bounding forward like a deer. "'Tis the maiden!' shouted the scout. "'Courage, lady! We come! We come!' The chase was renewed, with a diligence rendered tenfold encouraging by this glimpse of the captive. But the way was rugged, broken, and in spots, nearly impassable. Uncas abandoned his rifle, and leaped forward with headlong precipitation. Hayward rashly imitated his example, though both were, a moment afterward, admonished of this madness by hearing the bellowing of a piece that the Hurons found time to discharge down the passage in the rocks, the bullet from which gave the young Mohican a slight wound. "'We must close,' said the scout, passing his friends by desperate leaf. "'The knaves will pick us all off at this distance, and see, they hold the maiden so as to shield themselves.' Though his words were unheeded, or rather unheard, his example was followed by his companions, who, by incredible exertions, got near enough to the fugitives to perceive that Cora was borne along between the two warriors, while Malqua prescribed the direction and manner of their flight. At this moment the forms of all four were strongly drawn against an opening in the sky, and they disappeared. Nearly frantic with disappointment, Uncas and Hayward increased efforts that already seemed superhuman, and they issued from the cavern on the side of the mountain in time to note the route of the pursued. The course lay up the ascent, and still continued hazardous and laborious. Encumbered by his rifle, and, perhaps, not sustained by so deep an interest in the captive and his companions, the scout suffered the latter to precede him a little, Uncas, in his turn, taking the lead of Hayward, 
In this manner, rocks, precipices, and difficulties were surmounted in an incredibly short space that at another time, and under other circumstances, would have been deemed almost insuperable. But the impetuous young men were rewarded by finding that, encumbered with Cora, the Hurons were losing ground in the race. "'Stay, dog of the Wyandots!' exclaimed Uncas, shaking his bright tomahawk at Maqua. "'A Delaware girl calls stay!' "'I will go no further!' cried Cora, stopping unexpectedly on a ledge of rock that overhung a deep precipice at no great distance from the summit of the mountain. "'Kill me if thou wilt, detestable Huron! I will go no further!' The supporters of the maiden raised their ready tomahawks with the impious joy that fiends are thought to take in mischief, but Maqua stayed the uplifted arms. The Huron chief, after casting the weapons he had wrestled from his companions over the rock, drew his knife and turned to his captive with a look in which conflicting passions fiercely contended. "'Woman!' he said. "'Choose the wigwam or the knife of lay subtil!' Cora regarded him not, but dropping on her knees, she raised her eyes and stretched her arms toward heaven, saying in a meek and yet confiding voice, I am thine. Do with me as thou seest best. Woman! repeated Maqua hoarsely, and endeavoring in vain to catch a glance from her serene and beaming eye. Choose! But Cora neither heard nor heeded his demand. The form of the Huron trembled in every fibre, and he raised his arm on high, but dropped it again with a bewildered air, like one who doubted. Once more he struggled with himself, and lifted the keen weapon again. But just then a piercing cry was heard above them, and Uncas appeared, leaping frantically from a fearful height upon the ledge. Maqua recoiled a step, and one of his assistants, profiting by the chance, sheathed his own knife in the bosom of Cora. The Huron sprang like a tiger on his offending and already retreating countryman, but the falling form of Uncas separated the unnatural combatants. Diverted from his subject by this interruption, and maddened by the murder he had just witnessed, Maqua buried his weapon in the back of the prostrate Delaware, uttering an unearthly shout as he committed the dastardly deed. But Uncas arose from the blow, as the wounded panther turns upon his foe, and struck the murderer of Cora to his feet by an effort in which the last of his failing strength was expended. Then, with a stern and steady look, he turned to Les Subtil, and indicated by the expression of his eye all that he would do had not the power deserted him. The latter seized the nerveless arms of the unresisting Delaware and passed his knife into his bosom three several times, before his victim, still keeping his gaze riveted on his enemy with a look of inextinguishable scorn, fell dead at his feet. "'Mercy! Mercy, Huron!' cried Hayward from above, in tones nearly choked by horror. "'Give mercy, and thou shalt receive from it!' Whirling the bloody knife, up at the imploring youth, the victorious Maqua uttered a cry so fierce, so wild, and so joyous that it conveyed the sounds of savage triumph to the ears of those who fought in the valley a thousand feet below. 
he was answered by a burst from the lips of the scout, whose tall person was just then seen moving swiftly toward him, along those dangerous crags, with steps as bold and reckless, as if he possessed the power to move in air. But when the hunter reached the scene of the ruthless massacre, the ledge was tenanted only by the dead. His keen eye took a single look at the victims, and then shot its glances over the difficulties of the ascent in his front. A form stood at the brow of the mountain, on the very edge of the giddy height, with uplifted arms, in an awful attitude of menace. Without stopping to consider his person, the rifle of Hawkeye was raised, but a rock which fell on the head of one of the fugitives below exposed the indignant and glowing countenance of the honest Gamut. Then Maka issued from a crevice, and stepping with calm indifference over the body of the last of his associates, he leaped a wide fissure, and ascended the rocks at a point where the arm of David could not reach him. A single bound would carry him to the brow of the precipice, and assure his safety. Before taking the leap, however, the Huron paused, and shaking his hand at the scout, he shouted, the pale faces are dogs, the Delaware's women. Maqua leaves them on the rocks for the crows. Laughing hoarsely, he made a desperate leap and fell short of his mark, though his hands grasped a shrub on the verge of the height. The form of Hawkeye had crouched like a beast, about to make its spring, and his frame trembled so violently with eagerness that the muzzle of the half-raised rifle played like a leaf fluttering in the wind. Without exhausting himself with fruitless efforts, the cunning Maqua suffered his body to drop to the length of his arms, and found a fragment for his feet to rest on. Then, summoning all his powers, he renewed the attempt, and so far succeeded, as to draw his knees on the edge of the mountain. It was now, when the body of his enemy was most collected together, that the agitated weapon of the scout was drawn to his shoulder. The surrounding rocks themselves were not steadier than the piece became for the single instant that it poured out its contents. The arms of the Huron relaxed, and his body fell back a little, while his knees still kept their position. Turning a relentless look on his enemy, he shook his hand in grim defiance. But his hold loosened, and his dark person was seen, cutting the air with its head downward for a fleeting instant until it glided past the fringe of shrubbery which clung to the mountain in its rapid flight to destruction. End of chapter 32 This reading by Gary W. Sherwin of Yukon, Pennsylvania, in January of 2008. Chapter 33 of the Last of the Mohicans, a narrative of 1757 by James Fenimore Cooper. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 33 Quote, They fought like brave men, long and well. They piled that ground with Moslem slain. They conquered, but Bozaris fell, bleeding at every vein. His few surviving comrades saw 
his smile when rang their loud hurrah, and the red field was won. Then saw in death his eyelids close, calmly, as to a night's repose, like flowers at set of sun. Unquote. From Halleck. The sun found the Lenape on the seceding day a nation of mourners. The sounds of the battle were over, and they had fed fat their ancient grudge, and had avenged their recent quarrel with the Mengwe by the destruction of a whole community. The black and murky atmosphere that floated around the spot where the Hurons had encamped sufficiently announced of itself the fate of that wandering tribe, while hundreds of ravens that struggled above the summits of the mountains or swept in noisy flocks across the wide ranges of the woods furnished a frightful direction to the scene of the combat. In short, any eye at all practiced in the signs of a frontier warfare might easily have traced all those unerring evidences of the ruthless results which attend an Indian vengeance. Still, the sun rose on the Lenape a nation of mourners. No shouts of success, no songs of triumph were heard in rejoicings for their victory. The latest straggler had returned from his fell employment only to strip himself of the terrific emblems of his bloody calling, and to join in the lamentations of his countrymen as a stricken people. Pride and exultation were supplanted by humility, and the fiercest of human passions was already seceded by the most profound and unequivocal demonstrations of grief. The lodges were deserted, but a broad belt of earnest faces encircled a spot in their vicinity, whither everything possessing life had repaired, and where all were now collected in deep and awful silence. Though beings of every rank and age, of both sexes, and of all pursuits had united to form this breathing wall of bodies, they were influenced by a single emotion. Each eye was riveted on the center of that ring which contained the objects of so much and of so common an interest. Six Delaware girls, with their long, dark, flowing tresses falling loosely across their bosoms, stood apart and only gave proof of their existence as they occasionally strewed sweet-scented herbs and forest flowers on a litter of fragrant plants that, under a pall of Indian robes, supported all that remained of the ardent high-souled and generous Cora. Her form was concealed in many wrappers of the same simple manufacture, and her face was shut forever from the gaze of men. At her feet was seated the desolate Monroe. His aged head was bowed nearly to the earth, in compelled submission to the stroke of providence. But a hidden anguish struggled about his furrowed brow that was only partially concealed by the careless locks of gray that had fallen neglected on his temples. Gamut stood at his side, his meek head bared to the rays of the sun, while his eyes, wandering and concerned, seemed to be equally divided between that little volume which contained so many quaint but holy maxims, and the being in whose behalf 
his soul yearned to administer consolation. Hayward was also nigh, supporting himself against the tree, and endeavoring to keep down the sudden risings of sorrow that required his utmost manhood to subdue. But sad and melancholy as this group may easily be imagined, it was far less touching than another that occupied the opposite space of the same area. Seated, as in life, with his form and limbs arranged in grave and decent composure, Uncas appeared arrayed in the most gorgeous ornaments that the wealth of the tribe could furnish. Rich plumes nodded before his head, wampum, gorgets, bracelets, and medals adorned his person in profusion, though his dull eye and vacant lineaments too strongly contradicted the idle tale of pride they would convey. Directly in front of the corpse Chingachgook was placed, without arms, paint, or adornment of any sort, except the bright blue blazonry of his race, that was indelibly impressed on his naked bosom. During the long period that the tribe had thus been collected, the Mohican warrior had kept a steady, anxious look on the cold and senseless countenance of his son. So riveted and intense had been that gaze, and so changeless his attitude, that a stranger might not have told the living from the dead, but for the occasional gleamings of a troubled spirit that shot athwart the dark visage of one, and the death-like calm that forever settled on the lineaments of the other. The scout was hard by, leaning in a pensive posture on his own fatal and avenging weapon, while Tamanund, supported by the elders of his nation, occupied a high place at hand, whence he might look down on the mute and sorrowful assemblage of his people. Just within the inner edge of the circle stood a soldier, in the military attire of a strange nation, and without it was his war-horse, in the center of a collection of mounted domestics, seemingly in readiness to undertake some distant journey. The vestments of the stranger announced him to be one who held a responsible situation near the person of the captain of the Canadas, and who, as it would now seem, finding his errand of peace frustrated by the fierce impetuosity of his allies, was content to become a silent and sad spectator of the fruits of a contest that he arrived too late to anticipate. The day was drawing to the close of its first quarter, and yet had the multitude maintained its breathing silence since its dawn. No sound louder than a stifled sob had been heard among them, nor had even a limb been moved throughout that long and painful period, except to perform the touching offerings that were made from time to time, in commemoration of the dead. The patience and forbearance of the Indian fortitude could alone support such an appearance of abstraction, as seemed now to have turned each dark and motionless figure into stone. At length the sage of the Delaware stretched forth an arm, and leaning on the shoulders of his attendants, he arose with an air as feeble as if another age had already intervened between the man who had met his nation the preceding day, and him who now tottered on his elevated stand. "'Men of Penelope!' he said in low, 
hollow tones that sounded like a voice charged with some prophetic mission. The face of Manito is behind a cloud. His eye is turned from you. His ears are shut. His tongue gives no answer. You see him not yet his judgments are before you. Let your hearts be open, and your spirits tell no lie. Men of the Lenape, the face of the Manito is behind a cloud. As this simple and yet terrible enunciation stole on the ears of the multitude, a stillness as deep and awful seceded, as if the venerated spirit they worshipped had uttered the words without the aid of human organs. And even the inanimate Uncas appeared a being of life compared with the humbled and submissive throng by whom he was surrounded. As the immediate effect, however, gradually passed away, a low murmur of voices commenced a sort of chant in honor of the dead. The sounds were those of females, and were thrillingly soft and wailing. The words were connected by no regular continuation, but as one ceased, another took up the eulogy or lamentation, whichever it might be called, and gave vent to her emotions in such language as was suggested by her feelings and the occasion. At intervals the speaker was interrupted by general and loud bursts of sorrow during which the girls around the bier of Cora plucked the plants and flowers blindly from her body, as if bewildered with grief. But in the milder moments of their plaint, these emblems of purity and sweetness were cast back to their places, with every sign of tenderness and regret. Though rendered less connected by many and general interruptions and outbreakings, a translation of their language would have contained a regular descant, which in substance might have proved to possess a train of consecutive ideas. A girl selected for the task by her rank and qualifications commenced by modest allusions to the qualities of the deceased warrior, embellishing her expressions with those oriental images that the Indians have probably brought with them from the extremes of the other continent, and which form of themselves a link to connect the ancient history of the two worlds. She called him the panther of his tribe, and described him as one whose moccasin left no trail on the dews, whose bound was like the leap of a young fawn, whose eye was brighter than a star in the dark night, and whose voice in battle was loud as the thunder of Manito. She reminded him of the mother who bore him, and dealt forcibly on the happiness she must feel in possessing such a son. She bade him tell her, when they met in the world of spirits, that the Delawares had shed tears above the grave of her child, and had called her blessed. Then they who seceded, changing their tones to a milder and still more tender strain, alluded with the delicacy and sensitiveness of women to the stranger maiden, 
who had left the upper earth at a time so near his own departure, as to render the will of the great spirit too manifest to be disregarded. They admonished him to be kind to her, and to have consideration for her ignorance of those arts which were so necessary to the comfort of a warrior like himself. They dwelled upon her matchless beauty, and on her noble resolution, without the taint of envy, and as angels may be thought to delight in superior excellence, adding that these endowments should prove more than equivalent for any little imperfection in her education. After which others again, in due succession, spoke to the maiden herself in the low, soft language of tenderness and love. They exhorted her to be of cheerful mind, and to fear nothing for her future welfare. A hunter would be her companion, who knew how to provide for her smallest ones, and a warrior was at her side who was able to protect her against every danger. They promised that her path should be pleasant and her burden light. They cautioned her against unavailing regrets for the friends of her youth and the scenes where her father had dwelt, assuring her that the blessed hunting-grounds of the Lenape contained vales as pleasant, streams as pure, and flowers as sweet as the heaven of the pale-faces. They advised her to be attentive to the wants of her companion, and never to forget the distinction which the Manitou had so wisely established between them. Then, in a wild burst of their chant, they sang with united voices the temper of the Mohican's mind. They pronounced him noble, manly, and generous, all that became a warrior, and all that a maid might love. Clothing their ideas in the most remote and subtle images, they betrayed that in the short period of their intercourse they had discovered, with the intuitive perception of their sex, the truant disposition of his inclinations. The Delaware girls had found no favor in his eyes. He was of a race that had once been lords on the shores of the Salt Lake, and his wishes had led him back to a people who dwelt about the graves of his fathers. Why should not such a predilection be encouraged, that she was a blood purer and richer than the rest of her nation? Any eye might have seen that she was equal to the dangers and daring of a life in the woods. Her conduct had proved, and now, they added, the wise one of the earth had transplanted her to a place where she would find congenial spirits and might be forever happy. Then, with another transition in voice and subject, allusions were made to the virgin who wept in the adjacent lodge. They compared her to flakes of snow, as pure, as white, as brilliant, and as liable to melt in the fierce heats of summer, or congeal in the frost of winter. They doubted not that she was lovely in the eyes of the young chief whose skin and whose sorrow seemed so like her own. But though far from expressing such a preference, it was evident they deemed her less excellent than the maid they mourned. Still they denied her no need her rare charms might properly claim. 
her ringlets were compared to the exuberant tendrils of the vine, her eye to the blue vault of heavens, and the most spotless cloud with its glowing flush of the sun was admitted to be less attractive than her bloom. During these and similar songs nothing was audible but the murmurs of the music, relieved as it was, or rather rendered terrible, by those occasional bursts of grief, which might be called its choruses. The Delawares themselves listened like charmed men, and it was very apparent, by the variations of their speaking countenances, how deep and true was their sympathy. Even David was not reluctant to lend his ears to the tones of voices so sweet, and long ere the chant was ended, his gaze announced that his soul was enthralled. The scout, to whom alone of all the white men the words were intelligible, suffered himself to be a little aroused from his meditative posture, and bent his face aside to catch their meaning as the girls proceeded. But when they spoke of the future prospects of Cora and Uncas, he shook his head like one who knew the error of their simple creed, and resuming his reclining attitude, he maintained it until the ceremony, if that might be called a ceremony, in which feeling was so deeply imbued, was finished. Happily, for the self-command of both Hayward and Monroe, they knew not the meaning of the wild sounds they heard. Chingachgook was the solitary exception to the interest manifested by the native part of the audience. His look never changed throughout the whole of the scene, nor did a muscle move in his rigid countenance, even at the wildest or most pathetic parts of the lamentation. The cold and senseless remains of his son was all to him, and every other sense but that of sight seemed frozen in order that his eyes might take their final gaze at those liniments which he had so long loved and which were now about to be closed for ever from his view. In this stage of Abescues, a warrior much renowned for deed in arms, and more especially for services in the recent combat, a man of stern and grave demeanor, advanced slowly from the crowd, and placed himself nigh the person of the dead. "'Why hast thou left us, pride of the Wapanachki?' he said, addressing himself to the dull ears of Uncas, as if the empty clay retained the faculties of the animated man. "'Thy time has been like that of the sun when in the trees, thy glory brighter than his light at noonday.' Thou art gone, youthful warrior. But a hundred Wyandots are clearing the briars from thy path to the world of the spirits. Who that saw thee in battle would believe that thou couldst die? Who before thee has ever shown Ottawa the way into the fight? Thy feet were like the wings of eagles. Thine arm heavier than falling branches from the pine, and thy voice like the manito when he speaks in the clouds. The tongue of Ottawa is weak, he added, looking about him with a melancholy gaze. 
and his heart is exceeding heavy. Bride of the Wapanachki, why hast thou left us? He was succeeded by others in due order, until the most high and gifted men of the nation had sung or spoken their tribute of praise over the manes of the deceased chief. When each had ended, another deep and breathing silence reigned in all the place. Then a low, deep sound was heard, like the suppressed accompaniment of distant music, rising just high enough on the air to be audible, and yet so indistinctly as to leave its character, and the place whence it proceeded, alike matters of conjecture. It was, however, succeeded by another and another strain, each in a higher key, until they grew on the ear, first in long-drawn and often repeated interjections, and finally in words. The lips of Chingachgook had so far parted as to announce that it was the monody of the father. Though not an eye was turned toward him, nor the smallest sign of impatience exhibited, it was apparent by the manner in which the multitude elevated their heads to listen, that they drank in the sounds with an intenseness of attention that none but Tamanund himself had ever before commanded. But they listened in vain. The strains rose just so loud as to become intelligible, and then grew fainter and more trembling, until they finally sank on the ear as if borne away by a passing breath of wind. The lips of the Sagamore closed, and he remained silent in his seat, looking with his riveted eye and motionless form, like some creature that had been turned from the Almighty Hand, with the form but without the spirit of a man. The Delawares, who knew by these symptoms that their mind or their friend was not prepared for so mighty an effort of fortitude, relaxed their attention, and, with innate delicacy, seemed to bestow all their thoughts on the obescues of the stranger maiden. A signal was given by one of the elder chiefs to the women who crowded that part of the circle near which the body of Cora lay. Obedient to the sign, the girls raised the bier to the elevation of their heads, and advanced with slow and regulated steps chanting as they proceeded another wailing song in praise of the deceased. Gamut, who had been a close observer of the rites he deemed so heathenish, now bent his head over the shoulder of the unconscious father, whispering, They move with the remnants of thy child. Shall we not follow and see them interred with Christian burial? Monroe started, as if the last trumpet had sounded in his ear, and bestowing one anxious and hurried glance around him, he arose and followed in the simple train with the mien of a soldier, but bearing the full burden of apparent suffering. His friends pressed around him with a sorrow that was too strong to be termed sympathy. Even the young Frenchman, joining in the procession, with the air of a man who was sensibly touched at the early and melancholy fate of one so lovely. 
but when the last and humblest female of the tribe had joined in the wild and yet ordered array, the men of the Lenape contracted their circle and formed again around the person of Uncas, as silent, as grave, and as motionless as before. The place that had been chosen for the grave of Cora was a little knoll, where a cluster of young and healthful pines had taken root, forming of themselves a melancholy and appropriate shade over the spot. On reaching it, the girls deposited their burden, and continued for many minutes waiting with characteristic patience and native timidity for some evidence that they whose feelings were most concerned were content with the arrangement. At length the scout, who alone understood their habits, said in their own language, "'My daughters have done well. The white men thank them.' Satisfied with this testimony in their favor, the girls proceeded to deposit the body in a shell, ingeniously and not inelegantly fabricated of the bark of the birch, after which they lowered it into its dark and final abode. The ceremony of covering the remains and concealing the marks of the fresh earth by leaves and other natural and customary objects was conducted with the same simple and silent forms. But when the labors of the kind beings who had performed these sad and friendly offices were so far completed, they hesitated, in a way to show that they knew not how much further they might proceed. It was in this stage of the rites that the scout again dressed them. "'My young women have done enough,' he said. "'The spirit of the pale-face has no need of food or raiment, their gifts being according to the heaven of their color. "'I see,' he added, glancing an eye at David, who was preparing his book in a manner that indicated an intention to lead the way in sacred song, "'that one who better knows the Christian fashions is about to speak.' The female stood modestly aside, and, from having been the principal actors in the scene, they now became the meek and attentive observers of that which followed. During the time David occupied in pouring out the pious feelings of his spirits in this manner, not a sign of surprise nor a look of impatience escaped them. They listened like those who knew the meaning of the strange word and appeared as if they felt the mingled emotions of sorrow, hope, and resignation they were intended to convey. Excited by the scene he had just witnessed, and perhaps influenced by his own secret emotions, the master of song exceeded his usual efforts. His full rich voice was not found to suffer by a comparison with the soft tones of the girls and his more modulated strains possessed, at least for the ears of those to whom they were peculiarly addressed, the additional power of intelligence. He ended the anthem as he had commenced it, in the midst of a grave and solemn stillness. When, however, the closing cadence had fallen on the ears of his auditors, the secret, timorous glances of the eyes, and the general and yet subdued movement of the assemblage, betrayed that something was expected from the father of the deceased. Monroe seemed sensible that the time was come for him to exert what is, perhaps, the greatest effort of which human nature is capable. He bared his gray locks, and looked around the timid and quiet throng by which he was encircled, 
with a firm and collected countenance. Then, motioning with his hands for the scout to listen, he said, Say to these kind and gentle females that a heart-broken and failing man returns them his thanks. Tell them that the being we all worship, under different names, will be mindful of their charity, and that the time shall not be distant when we may assemble around his throne without distinction of sex, rank, or color. The scout listened to the tremulous voice in which the veteran delivered these words, and shook his head slowly when they were ended, as one who doubted their efficacy. To tell them this, he said, would be to tell them that the snows come not in the winter, or that the sun shines fiercest when the trees are stripped of their leaves. Then turning to the women, he made such a communication of the other's gratitude, as he deemed most suited to the capabilities of his listeners. The head of Monroe had already sunk upon his chest, and he was again fast relapsing into melancholy, when the young Frenchman, before named, ventured to touch him lightly on the elbow. As soon as he had gained the attention of the mourning old man, he pointed toward a group of young Indians, who approached with a light but closely covered litter, and then pointed upward toward the sun. "'I understand you, sir,' returned Monroe, with a voice of forced firmness. "'I understand you. It is the will of heaven, and I submit.' Cora, my child, if the prayers of a heart-broken father could avail thee now, how blessed shouldst thou be! Come, gentlemen, he added, looking about him with an air of lofty composure, though the anguish that quivered in his faded countenance was far too powerful to be concealed. Our duty here is ended. Let us depart. Hayward gladly obeyed a summons that took them for a spot where, each instant, he felt his self-control was about to desert him. While his companions were mounting, however, he found time to press the hand of the scout, and to repeat the terms of an engagement they had made to meet again within the post of the British army. Then, gladly throwing himself into the saddle, he spurred his charger to the side of the litter, whence low and stifled sobs alone announced the presence of Alice. In this manner, the head of Monroe again drooping on his bosom, with Hayward and David following in sorrowing silence, and attended by the aid of Montcalm with his guard, all the white men, with the exception of Hawkeye, passed before the eyes of the Delawares, and were buried in the vast forest of that region. But the tie, which through their common calamity, had united the feelings of these simple dwellers of the woods, with the strangers who had thus transiently visited them, was not so easily broken. Years passed away before the traditionary tale of the white maiden and of the young warrior the Mohicans ceased to beguile the long nights and tedious marches, or to animate their youthful and brave with a desire for vengeance. Neither were the secondary actors in these momentous incidents forgotten. Through the medium of the scout, who served for years afterward as a link between them and civilized life, 
they learned in answer of their inquiries that the gray head was speedily gathered to his father's borne down as was erroneously believed by his military misfortunes and that the open hand had conveyed his surviving daughter far into the settlements of the pale-faces where her tears had at last ceased to flow and had been succeeded by the bright smiles which were better suited to her joyous nature but these events were of a time latter than which concerns our tale deserted by all of his color hawkeye returned to the spot where his sympathies led him with a force that no ideal bond of union could destroy he was just in time to catch a parting look of the features of uncas who the delawares were already enclosing in his last vestment of skins they paused to permit the longing and lingering gaze of the sturdy woodsman and when it was ended the body was enveloped never to be unclosed again then came a procession like the other and the whole nation was collected about the temporary grave of the chief temporary because it was proper that at some future day his bones should rest among those of his own people the movement like the feeling had been simultaneous and general the same grave expression of grief the same rigid silence and the same deference to the principal mourner were observed around the place of interment as have been already described the body was deposited in an attitude of repose facing the rising sun with the implements of war and of the chase at hand in readiness for the final journey an opening was left in the shell by which it was protected from the soil for the spirit to communicate with its earthly tenement when necessary and the whole was concealed from the instinct and protected from the ravages of the beast of prey with an ingenuity peculiar to the natives the manual rites then ceased and all present reverted to the more spiritual part of the ceremonies chingachgook became once more the object of the common attention he had not yet spoken and something consolatory and instructive was expected from so renowned a chief on an occasion of such interests conscious of the wishes of the people the stern and self-restrained warrior raised his face which had latterly been buried in his robe and looked about him with a steady eye his firmly compressed and expressive lips then severed and for the first time during the long ceremonies his voice was distinctly audible why do my brothers mourn he said regarding the dark race of dejected warriors by whom he was environed why do my daughters weep that a young man has gone to the happy hunting grounds that a chief has filled his time with honor he was good he was dutiful he was brave who can deny it the manito had need of such a warrior and he has called him away as for me the son and the father of ungus i am a blazed pine in a clearing of the pale faces my race has gone from the shores of the salt lake and the hills of the delawares but who can say 
that the serpent of his tribe has forgotten his wisdom. I am alone. No, no, cried Hawkeye, who had been gazing with a yearning look at the rigid features of his friend with something like his own self-command, but whose philosophy could endure no longer. No, Sagamore, not alone. The gifts of our colors may be different, but God so placed us as to journey in the same path. I have no kin, and I may also say, like you, no people. He was your son, and a red skin by nature, and it may be that your blood was near. But if ever I forget the lad who has so often fought at my side in war, and slept at my side in peace, may he who made us all, whatever may be our color or our gifts, forget me. The boy has left us for a time, but Sagmore, you are not alone. Chinchgotchkook grasped the hand that, in the warmth of feeling, the scout had stretched across the fresh earth, and in an attitude of friendship those two sturdy and intrepid woodsmen bowed their heads together, while scalding tears, while scalding tears fell to their feet, watering the grave of Uncas, like drops of falling rain. In the midst of the awful stillness, with which such a burst of feeling coming as it did, from the two most renowned warriors of that region was received. Tamanund lifted his voice to disperse the multitude. It is enough, he said. Go, children of the Lenape. The anger of Manitou is not done. Why should Tamanund stay? The pale faces are masters of the earth, and the time of the red men has not yet come again. My day has been too long. In the morning I saw the sons of Unamis, happy and strong, and yet before the night has come have I lived to see the last warrior of the wise race of the Mohicans. End of chapter 33. End of The Last of the Mohicans, a narrative of 1757 by James Fenimore Cooper. This reading by Gary W. Sherwin of Yukon, Pennsylvania, in January of 2008. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org.